are listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. Today we have an extended reading from Revelation, chapter 10 and 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded and when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants and prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses." And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. For if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord is crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. 
Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for he has taken your, you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. All right, a couple things uh, before we get going this morning. First of all, uh, near you is one of these postcards for the women's retreat, which is coming up a month from this weekend. Um, we were thinking about, hey, who is a wise, insightful, uh, godly older woman we could bring in to sort of challenge and equip and, and mentor uh, the women of Coromdale? Uh, one of the people that landed on our whiteboard was my mommy. So... Mommy's coming to do the women's retreat. My mom's a great lady, been walking with Jesus for a long time. I'm jealous for you to uh, take in from what God has given her wisdom-wise. And so uh, I wanted you to know that. This is uh, coming up in a month, and so ladies, that's for you. Um, secondly, next Sunday, as you know, is Easter. And what that means for you is it's going to be absolute chaos in this room right here. All right? So let me give you three tips. Number one, no extra seat for your Bible next week, all right? You need to reduce your personal space requirement. You're going to need to sit next to people, all right? Uh, secondly, if you can be here at the 9 o'clock, we anticipate that the 11 o'clock service will be the, the most packed out one. So if you can come at 9, you might want to do that. Uh, also, probably be wise if you showed up actually at 11 instead of 11.15. Not going to be a whole lot of seats by 11.15. I'm not going to kid you. And so if you're used to getting here and sliding in the back, that might not be a reality uh, next week. So be here early and please be patient. I mean, you know, we're just trying to, going to try to do the best we can to organize and manage uh, space. And so, you know, if you got to park far away, if it's a little chaotic, bear with us, be kind, be Christ-like, and love people well. All right? That's next Sunday. We will enjoy worshiping together uh, the risen Lord. We're going to start this morning with a little theology lesson. And, and so let me introduce you to a very important concept in the Bible, which is the concept of the day of the Lord. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is for, especially for the Old Testament prophets, what we call a technical term, meaning it has a very specific focus. It's used in a very particular way. So for instance, the prophet Zephaniah in the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament says this, the great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So the prophets saw there would be this coming day of the Lord in which he would make an end of things and bring us new heavens, new earth, or at least new kingdom in the heavens. And so as the Old Testament 
sort of saints and prophets understood the day of the Lord, it would look someone like this if we were to diagram it out. There is the current age, this age, this time, then there would be the day of the Lord, and that would usher in the age to come, or heaven. This was the dominant thinking then for most people who were alive in Jesus' time, and you can imagine then, if this is how you're expecting things to work, you can understand why when Jesus started talking about the coming of the kingdom, everybody was sort of getting ready. Right? You can understand why James and John are asking questions like, hey, can we sit on your right and on your left when you bring your kingdom? You can understand why the apostles in Acts chapter 1, even after the resurrection, are asking Jesus, hey, is, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, they're expecting, boom, day of the Lord, final judgment, it's going to happen. But if you pay attention to how Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, you'll notice that he, it's kind of interesting what he does with this idea. In, in a sense, he's violating their expectations. So for instance, in Mark chapter 1, the very first words out of the mouth of Jesus in Mark's gospel account are Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Likewise, in Luke 11, he, he tells them, the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's talking about the kingdom as though it's here, it's come, it's right now. And yet there's no day of the Lord, no day of wrath, final judgment, stars falling from the sky. And so you can imagine why his hearers and even his disciples are a little bit perplexed as to what he's talking about. What we learn as we unpack Jesus' teaching on the kingdom and that of the New Testament is that actually what's happened in the coming of Jesus Christ is that the coming kingdom of God has broken into and overlapped with the current age. So instead of there being this defining moment that ends the age and ushers in the age to come, we see actually this in the New Testament, that from the resurrection of Christ until His return, so there still is coming a day of the Lord when Jesus comes back, but that right now, since Jesus' first coming, the kingdom of God has broken into this world, this realm, this age. And so we live in this overlapping of ages. And this is why then the apostles, as they... Uh, inspired by the Spirit, write the New Testament, say things like, hey, hey, your citizenship is in heaven from whom we await a king who is Christ the Lord. They're saying, look, I know you're still living here in this broken, fallen world, but remember, the kingdom of God has broken in. There's a different set of rules that you play by. There's a different kingdom that you live for. All of God's people in Christ now orient their lives according to a different kingdom. So think about the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, Here's how you should pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, what we're longing for, what we're praying for in that prayer is, God, let there be more overlap, right? More of your will done on earth. More of this world looking like what your kingdom looks like when it comes fully and finally. Understanding this idea of the overlapping of the ages is crucial to understanding your Bible. It will help you understand, for instance, the, the perplexity of the Jews when they hear Jesus' teachings. And it will also help you understand well the book of Revelation. When you remember that we live in this in-between period between the first coming of Christ and His second coming, when the reign and rule and kingdom of God is breaking in, overlapping the current age that exists. Now, there's a, there's a third view or a third way of looking at things that I want to mention briefly because it's come to be dominant in the current conversation about Revelation. And so it's worth just mentioning 
Uh, I'm going to do it very briefly, and I, I talked about it a lot more in this um, Intro to Revelation book, which is still available at the resource table. And so, you know, if this kind of thing trips your trigger, get one of these, and you'll be able to read more about how all this works out. But there is a, a minority viewpoint in scholarship called dispensational futurism. You don't need to know that. It's just what it's called in the literature. And this is uh, the, the reason this viewpoint exerts a lot of influence is because this is the point of view of Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind series of books. Now, Left Behind, you should know, has sold 65 million copies. Seven of the books in this series were number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and the New York Times doesn't even count Protestant bookstore sales. Right, so this is a massively influential book in sort of the cultural dialogue that we find ourselves in. And so because of the influence of Left Behind, it's important that you know that, bo- that whole series of books is coming from a certain framework called dispensational futurism. Now here's what dispensational futurists believe. Similar to the diagram we just looked at, except what they understand the Bible to teach is that Jesus is going to come down and do kind of a U-turn. You notice that? He comes down in the rapture, but then goes back up because he takes all the Christians with him. Okay, so there's this rapture of the church. You're going to leave your clothes and your boots behind. You're going to get sucked out of them. Boom, you're gone. So there's piles of clothes everywhere, but no people, okay? And, and then there's a seven-year tribulation where things get really bad. And this is where most of the book of Revelation, they feel, is talking about this seven-year tribulation. And after that, then the day of the Lord, coming of Christ, final judgment. Now, you can see why this would be appealing if you're a Christian, Right? Because you get to get out of here before things get really bad. All the judgments of God, you get to avoid all those because you're not here. Uh, so, so it's honestly a very appealing framework in some ways. Um, unfortunately, what, what I want to argue this morning, and I'm not arguing my own thinking here, but, but the, honestly, the vast majority of scholars... Uh, the rapture, the idea of a rapture that happens before Jesus' second coming is very simply not in the Bible. All right Now, that doesn't mean there aren't passages that those people use and, and think that they're talking about a rapture. But if you study those passages carefully, okay, Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 5, what you'll find is all of those passages are referring to the second coming, the day of the Lord. They're not referring to this pre-day of the Lord coming called the rapture. This idea of a rapture is fairly recent. It's only been around for about 150 years. You won't find it well represented in church history. And even modern scholars are sort of running like the plague from this understanding of Scripture. But because of the popularity and the influence of the Left Behind series, it remains a very popular view among sort of average everyday people, everyday Christians, kind of living, reading left behind more than they read the Bible, that kind of thing, all right? So I have to mention that because in a few moments, what you're going to see is that colors then how some people approach the text of Revelation that we're going to look at this morning. Now, uh, let's go back then to that previous diagram, the New Testament understanding of the kingdom of God, which is between the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ, this is now where we live where we live in a current age that's fallen, broken, a world corrupted by sin, and yet the kingdom of God has broken in because of the coming of Jesus and continues to be definitive for those of us who are the people of God. How are we to live 
in that in-between time? How are we to live in that overlap of the ages? That is in many questions, or in many respects, the question or the point of the book of Revelation. Remember, John is writing this to help encourage the church in the midst of this period, in the midst of between Jesus' first coming and his coming again. And so John wants to remind you, you need to look backward. You need to remember, Jesus came, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and therefore Jesus' resurrection is the down payment, right? It's the guarantee that all of this is true, that you, like Jesus, will be raised from death, that death will not be victorious over you, that there is an eternal kingdom that is brought in Jesus Christ. We want you to look backward and remember the resurrection. But John also wants you to look forward and remember Jesus is coming again. New heavens, new earth, the removal of sin from the world. He wants you to be hopeful as you look forward. But John also wants you to remember you you live in the in-between. And so here's what you've got to remember. You've got to remember that the kingdom of God comes in three phases or three stages as it were. God's kingdom was inaugurated when Jesus came, died, rose from the dead, in Jesus' work, life, death, and resurrection. Jesus' kingdom will be finally and fully consummated when He brings new heavens, new earth. But right now, Jesus' kingdom is continuing through the Holy Spirit as the Spirit is at work in the world through the church. Okay, so right now, you and I are a part of God's kingdom activity. We are right now living in the in-between. We are a part of God continuing His work in the world, building His kingdom until the day He comes in fully and finally consummating it the way Scripture describes. And so we look backward to inauguration, we look forward to consummation, and we live in the continuation, we live in the middle. And so, how are we to live in the in-between? The answer is shown to us in Revelation chapters 10 and 11, which you've already heard read. And as you probably heard, there's a lot going on in these two chapters. right? So let's just summarize. What's, what's happening in these two chapters of the book of Revelation? Well, first of all, in Revelation 10, an angel comes, gives John a scroll, and tells him to eat it. And so he does which is a little odd because you don't eat paper every day, right? He eats it. It's sweet in his mouth, but in his stomach it becomes bitter. And the, the, the angel reiterates to John, you must prophesy to about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then in chapter 11, we meet these two witnesses. And they testify about Jesus very boldly, very powerfully, but then they are killed by the beast Whoever that is. We haven't heard about any beast until right now in the text of Revelation. Uh, The witnesses lie dead for a few days. Then they come back to life. They're brought up into heaven. And right after that happens, there's an earthquake. The seventh angel blows his trumpet. And then we have decreation language, coming of God's kingdom, new heavens, new earth. Now remember, these two chapters are an interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh. They're a dramatic pause in this crescendo of God's escalating judgment on the earth. And so this interlude, this pause, is here to show us what God's people are to do in between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. 
We are to do very simply what John does in chapter 10 and what the two witnesses do in chapter 11. So these give us a picture, if you will, of what our responsibility is as we live in the in-between. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is to focus on the overall themes of these two chapters. I'm going to do precious little work in the details of the text. And I want you to know that because there's plenty of details here to sink your teeth into. And if you want to do that work, uh, there are some really good commentaries and resources. You should seek them out, do the work of sort of studying these passages. I'm not going to do sort of the fine work in each verse in the exegetical work. And here's why I'm choosing instead to do a higher level sort of thematic approach. It's because I think it's possible to argue the theological minutia of these chapters and miss the whole point of why they're here. In fact, I would say that's very common for, for Christians to get all caught up in the little minutia of who are the two witnesses and what's the 42 months mean and what does it mean they're going to turn the waters to blood and all, all these little details and miss the big picture of why are these chapters in the Bible. I don't want us to make that mistake. Uh, this is, in some ways, why the left behind people make me a little bit cuckoo. All right? It is because what, they, what that perspective says is that these chapters are describing things that take place after the rapture. And so Christians have already been sucked up into the sky. John is prophesying to those who are left behind. These two witnesses are coming at the end of the tribulation period. And so in the end, what that approach to the Bible is saying is, these chapters really have no relevance for you if you're a Christian here today because you're not going to be here for them. So what God did was he put these chapters in the Bible for people who are going to become Christians after they get left behind. Now, I value the trust in God's preservation of his revelation that, that God would do that. Okay, that's good. But remember, John is writing the book of Revelation for the church for the people of God in his day who are persecuted, for the people of God in our day who are trying to understand what our role is in God's big picture. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that there would be chapters in here that have no relevance to anyone except a very small group of people living at the very end of time. That point of view misses, I think, the entire point of these two chapters. Remember, in the very first sermon on Revelation, I said what Revelation is, is it gives us a vision of the future that is to shape our living in the present. That's, that's the goal, is that it would shape how we live now. And so, living in between Christ's resurrection and Christ's triumphant return, what are we to do? We are to do what John does in chapter 10 and what the two witnesses do in chapter 11. In other words, we are to speak and we are to suffer. If you have a Bible this morning, turn back to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, in a a minute we'll show the text behind me. But turn back to the the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 2. Beginning in verse 8, here's what we see. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. 
And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Does this sound, this should sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? If you've been here the last few weeks, this should sound really familiar. Chapter 3, and he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. I keep telling you, John is not inventing any new images. Do you believe me yet? He's just ripping off the Old Testament. He knows it really well. All right? This idea of eating a scroll, of ingesting and digesting the Word of God is a biblical metaphor for the work of the prophet. A prophet is one who speaks God's Word to people. And so the idea is, first of all, to do that, first of all, you need to take it in. You need to eat it. You need to digest it. And then, after that, you speak it. You declare it. Not merely as one who has seen it and then talked about it, but as one who has taken it in. That it has become part of you. It has defined you. And now you know it well enough to, to declare it to people. In Revelation 10, this is exactly how John is commissioned. He's commissioned the same way. John, take this scroll, eat it, and then go prophesy to peoples, languages, nations, kings. Now, as we live in between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, John's commission is our commission. We are to be a prophetic people. Not in the sense of like listening for weird words from God, but in the sense of taking in God's word and then making it known. The, The church is called as a community of God's witnesses, what we are to be doing is knowing God's word, letting it transform us, and then declaring it, making it known to the world around us. This is what we do here on Sunday mornings. This is why we are committed to the preaching, the exposition, the declaration of the word of God. Why we spend a large chunk of our time on Sunday mornings opening the scriptures, hearing them read, talking about them, preaching them. This is what we are committed to and what you are to be doing in missional communities as you gather in someone's living room and and you take the truth of the gospel of the word of God and you apply it into someone's particular life situation. This is what we're doing. This is what you are to be about as a personal disciple of Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, you're to be taking in the word of God and then making it known. This is what our commission is. We are to do the same thing John is doing in Revelation 10. Now, now here's why we need to hear this. All right? why, why, why does God want us to be reminded of this? Because some of you are prone to thinking that you can be an effective missionary, an effective witness for Christ, that the, really the best way for you to be missional is not to use your Bible. Right, like you're hip and you have great relationships with people and you're an extrovert 
And so really the best thing for you to do is just kind of use your relational leverage and network and get to know people and have them, invite them to church, invite them to stuff. And so because you're such an amazing missional witness, you're going to make an impact for Jesus. Or you're an introvert, you're not very good with people, and so that kind of scares you, and so you'd rather just not be invested at all. Instead of saying, you know what? The way you are going to live as a faithful missionary in the culture is, first of all, by being defined by the Word of God, by being rooted in the story of God, by knowing His truth well enough and letting it transform you deeply enough that out of you comes wisdom, truth, gospel. A few Thursdays ago, uh, the pastors and I we're at a restaurant. We try to spend Thursday mornings, a uh, significant sort of unhurried chunk of time, pastoring each other and then just talking about shepherding needs in our church at large and trying to do a good job faithfully praying for you guys and serving you. And so uh, Thursday mornings, we just sort of have this unhurried time where we spend time together doing that. And we're sitting at this restaurant. There's a guy in a booth, a few booths over. He's got a big old Bible out. He kind of makes eye contact. And he gets up and starts walking toward us. And I'm going, oh no, here we go. Right? And he comes over and says, uh, brothers, I was just praying for you guys over there and I think the Lord has a word for you. And I, it's just an awkward moment for me because here's the deal. I actually believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and that God gives people words. It's just that 75% of the people that think they have that are usually off kilter. And so, I just don't know what to do with them, right? But it's an awkward, because when he comes up and says, I think the Lord gave me a word for you, do you mind if I, mind if I say it? What are you going to say? No, we don't want to hear from the Lord today, bro. Go back to your booth. So we were pastors. Give me a break. All right, yes. What does the Lord have to say, right? So man, he opens up to Isaiah 55 and just starts reading some two or three verses from Isaiah. He says, man, I, this, this text got impressed upon me. I just wanted you, to, you guys to know that. I don't know what God wants to do with that, but there it is. He takes his Bible, goes and sits back down. And we're kind of like, ah, awkward. Like, you know what? Opening our Bibles, like, I don't know, what is, what is Isaiah 55? What is, you know, do we need to hear something in that? Do we need to see something out? What's God trying to say to us in that? And so it was this, there was this heavy awkwardness to that moment and a little bit of sort of like, I don't know what to do with that. But then as I was reflecting on it, here's what I realized. I don't think anyone from Coram Deo would probably ever do that. And some of that is because you're just not that charismatic. But more of it is because none of you have actually read the book of Isaiah. So you wouldn't know what to, like you wouldn't go to Isaiah 55 because you don't know what's there, right? And so I found myself actually thanking God. I'm actually, man, I'm impressed and I'm thankful that there's a dude that loves your word. And he, like he's going to open it and come over here and read it to us. Like, that's a good thing. Man, that guy's a good, I mean, you know, I don't know. He might have other issues, but he, he, he loves the word right? And I thought, you know what? That's with less awkwardness and weirdness. That's the kind of people I want Corn to be. I want us to know the word. I want us to be a people that actually would know what to do with the Bible, right? That we can exhort each other, encourage each other with the truth of scripture because it's come into us. And then just like John, it flows out of us, right? I mean, John isn't cross-referencing Ezekiel. Like, oh, what ha- was that that happened back in Ezekiel 2? He, he just knows the Old Testament. His, his whole lexicon of words are just stored up in him from a lifetime of reading and knowing and studying Scripture. 
It's a great vision for the kind of people that we need to be. God says your calling, people of God, is to declare the word, to make it known, and, and to make it known out of its transformative effect on you. And I want you to notice, if the word is properly understood, properly ingested, it's going to be both sweet and bitter. It will be sweet to those who are soft-hearted, who love the Word of God, who are humble to the Word of God. But there are parts of God's truth that will be bitter to people who are hard-hearted, to people who are rebellious. The book of Revelation is clear. It keeps reinforcing over and over again. There will be people who won't repent, who won't turn to God, who don't want to hear what He has to say. And so, men, the revelation, the truth of God's Word is going to be bitter to some people. And it's going to be bitter to you as you realize, man, people aren't going to want to hear this part. Nobody wants me to read that part. Right? I mean, do you ever notice anything that's true, right? Some people are going to love it and some people are going to hate it. If everybody likes it, that's your first clue, it's probably not true, right? And if everybody hates it, your first clue, something's probably off there too. Truth is, man, For some people, it's going to be sweet and joyful. And for some people, they are going to resist it and rebel against it, and it's going to seem bitter to them. So our calling, like John, is that we are to speak. We are to declare. We are to know God's truth and make it known. But the second piece of our commissioning is not just to speak, but to suffer. Back to... Back to Revelation 11, we, we see these witnesses, right? These two witnesses that God raises up, and, and what happens to them? Well, first of all, they testify with authority and strength and boldness and, boldness and conviction. And then right after that, what? They get killed. Let's close in prayer. They get killed by the beast who rises from the bottomless pit. They get killed in the streets of the great city that is identified with Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem. What's going on here? Who who are these witnesses? Let me read you a couple uh, scholars on the book of Revelation. First of all, Greg Beale says this, The two witnesses are not two individual prophets. Rather, they represent the whole community of faith whose primary function is to be a prophetic witness. Uh, Grant Osborne, another scholar, says this, It is likely that the two witnesses are two individuals who will appear at this final period of world history. At the same time, they are corporately identified with the church and symbolize its ministry during this period. Okay, so here you have one guy saying, I think these aren't two actual individuals, they're just a, a symbol for the church at large. You have another guy saying, no, these are two actual historical individuals who will arise at the end of time, but they're also symbolic of the church at large. Right? You see what the defining point is? Regardless of what you think or what is true about the actual identity of both of these two witnesses, the, the bigger piece that is true is that their commission is the church's commission. They reflect what God's people as a whole are to be doing. They symbolize the ministry of the church between inauguration and consummation. Part of the way that we witness to the gospel is by suffering. We follow a suffering Savior and we are called to share in His 
sufferings. So let's talk about what that means for a few minutes. When I say suffering, I'm talking about a wide range of things. Okay? Uh, some, for some people, suffering looks like imprisonment, death, martyrdom. Right? We talked a few weeks ago about my friend Rashid in Pakistan, who that was the script of his life when it came to following Jesus. For most of us, though, that's not what suffering is going to look like. But it will look like some other things. Now, for some of you, suffering is going to mean your family rejects you. They don't know what to do with your testimony of faith in Christ, your desire to follow Him, and so you're sort of ostracized, shunned, or guilted into, why are you the weird Christian guy that always has to ruin everything? Right? That's, that's a form of suffering. When you are ostracized, rejected by people that you love, it's a form of suffering. For some of you, suffering is going to look like romantic relationships coming to an end because you're trying to follow Jesus with your life. This person you love and care about isn't exactly going in the same direction. And as you walk down the road, you figure out, man, we're we're not headed in the same direction. So I I love you, I care about you, but and this isn't going to work. If you've walked that road, that's painful. That's a piece of suffering. It's what it looks like to suffer for the kingdom of God. For some of you, it means other people are going to get ahead, are going to get promoted ahead of you, are going to get a better medical school match than you, are going to get better grades in class than you, and you're not because you're a person of integrity, you follow the rules, you try to be obedient and not cheat. Meanwhile, they cut corners... They lack integrity, they get away with things that are shady, and they get promoted for it. It's a form of suffering for doing what is right. For some of you, suffering is going to look like watching other people enjoy their sin while you're trying to repent of yours. Right? So you've been convicted, man, this way I used to live isn't right, I need to turn from it. Meanwhile, you're going to be surrounded by people who don't have any conviction about that, and they just keep doing it. I have a friend who recently came to know Jesus out of a lifestyle of active homosexuality. And now he's trying to walk with Jesus and live in obedience and deal with all of those, that past life and those longings and urges. And in the meantime, down the hall from him at work is a guy who's still engaged in that lifestyle and just having a great time. And my friend says, man, going to work every day is suffering. Because I got to confront that. And what do I do with that? And, and do I really want to turn from that? Am I really committed to following Jesus? That's suffering. For some of you, suffering is going to mean loneliness. Right, I have another friend who came to know Jesus a couple years ago. Man, she had a great crew of friends that she used to go out with, and most of they used to drink a lot. Right? And so now she says, man... My desires are all changed, and Jesus has changed my heart, and I want different things. And so my friends call up, and they're like, hey, we're going out drinking. Do you want to go with us? My answer is, well, not really. So guess what? It's Friday night. Here I am at home by myself. My friends who I love are out doing their thing. And I love them, and I want to be with them, but I just don't have a desire to do the stuff they do. That's an example of suffering. Suffering is a wide range of things. It's, what does it mean for you to walk the road of discipleship to Jesus? And what is that going to cost you? Now, let me say this briefly, okay? Because anytime we talk about suffering, I always have to make this 
clear. It's also possible to suffer just because you're foolish. All right, so the fact that you are a Christian and are feeling suffering does not mean those two are connected. Right, you with me? So like, there's always the guy who's like, man, I keep losing my job because I'm a Christian. No, you keep getting fired because you're a bad employee. Okay, that's not Jesus' fault. That's, that's on you. You with me? So there are some things, that's, not all your suffering is because of following Jesus. So get some wise friends to speak into that and help you discern the difference, all right? But here's my concern. Uh, I don't think we have a category for suffering being part of our calling. For suffering being something that we are privileged to walk in because we follow Jesus. So somehow we think, since Jesus suffered and he suffered for me, I shouldn't experience that. My life should be great. The Bible says the exact opposite. Since Jesus suffered, guess what you get to do? Walk in his footsteps, which is going to involve suffering. We as Americans want to avoid suffering, right? Our whole life is built around not suffering in any considerable way. We are like Charlie Sheen. We like winning, right? I want my life to be about winning, not suffering. And there are churches out there that will tell you, man, God wants you to be a winner. God is out for you to win. So I got an email this week from a church that was planted here in Omaha less than four years ago, and they were inviting us to a a, a function that they're putting on. And so I was like, you know what? I don't know much about this church. I should do some research. So I got on the internet, looked at their website, In their doctrinal statement, here's what it says. God's will is for you to be healthy, prosperous, and at peace. Which means, if you are not healthy or prosperous, what in the world is wrong with you? You're not in line with God's will. Tell that to someone who's suffering with terminal cancer and see how that works. It's just ludicrous. That's at odds with the Bible. Let me show you what the Bible says. 2 Timothy 1 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16. This is great. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. There are bad things to suffer for. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Don't suffer for stupid stuff, for being a criminal. But listen, if you suffer for being a Christian, praise God for that. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are beaten and they're sort of like rejected from society and it says they go home praising God that they were counted worthy of suffering. Your life as a follower of Jesus is going to include suffering And that suffering, your persistence, your worship of Christ in that suffering, how you deal with that suffering while hoping in God is part of your testimony to the gospel. While you live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, here's your calling. Speak and suffer. Speak the words of God and be okay with the fact that you're going to endure suffering as a child of God. We're called by Jesus to be a people who speak and a people who suffer. Now, let's be honest. How big of a failure are we at this? Right? 
Like how many of you guys have ever had that experience where you're in a conversation, you know the Holy Spirit is prompting you to say something, and you don't? Or you want to say something, and there's, you don't have any Bible verses in mind that you could possibly use, and so you just feel like that person who doesn't know what to say. How many of you guys, the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door and you hide in the basement because you're not sure what to do with that, right? There we go. Now we're, now we're tapping into reality. How many times instead of suffering well, instead of enduring, instead of trusting God in the midst of hardship, do you complain, get bitter? Here's the good news. Your hope is not in your ability to speak and suffer well. That's not what we hope in. The response to this isn't, all right, buck up, campers, let's go speak well and suffer well for the kingdom. See, the good news is, there is one who didn't just speak the word of God, but was the word of God. There is one who didn't just show us how to suffer, but suffered on our behalf, in our place, for our sin. His name is Jesus. And see, the paradox of the gospel is, when we try to get better at speaking and suffering and doing the things God wants us to do, we only fail more miserably. But as we get our eyes off of ourselves and begin to worship Him who spoke only words of grace and truth, who suffered in our place for our sins, when we begin to worship Him, when we begin to hope in Him, when we begin to trust in Him, then what happens is His Spirit actually begins to change us to enable us to speak with more conviction and to suffer with more patience and hope. See, the good news this morning is that your hope isn't in you. It's not in us. It's in Jesus and what he's done for us. And so in him, through him, by his grace, we're empowered to be a people who speak truth and who suffer well. Pray for that to be true of us. Jesus, uh, thanks for the hard parts of Scripture that tell us things that sometimes we don't want to hear. God, thanks that you do not call us to avoid suffering, but that you call us to trust you in the midst of suffering. Uh, Thank you that you call us like John to take in your word, to let it transform us and, and so that we can speak it, not out of just knowing what it says or being able to find it on the internet somewhere, but, but out of the transforming work that it has done in our own souls. God, it's my prayer this morning that, that you would accomplish that, that our hope would be in you, that you'd point our affections and our minds toward Jesus and what he did to suffer on our behalf and to speak truth to us. And that out of that, you would transform us to be a people who speak with boldness and courage and grace and who suffer with humility and patience and worshipfulness. God, I pray for those uh, who are here this morning who haven't yet trusted in you and, and who perhaps are confused by false gospels and false ideas out there that you want everybody to be healthy and happy. And God, I pray they would see the richness, the fullness, how much better the biblical gospel is than all of that. That what the gospel is, is you offering them a Savior who has suffered on their behalf. Would you make our minds and our affections more captivated with who Jesus is and what he did. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.